Um, quickly just tell the listeners how much better my closet looks. <laughs> it looks really amazing, I must say. There's still so, there's still some work to go. Yeah, it looks like a professional closet now. It does. Yeah, yeah. It's what you can't see though. Like there's still some hoodies. <laughs> still haven't developed a beverage holding system in the closet. Can you get one of those like like the I don't know like adapt like one of those um those vent mounts for your cars or whatever like could that be <laughs> and then just bolt it to the wall. There's got to be cup holders you can get for walls. Yeah, I've got some know. stuff. I don't I don't know why anyone on. would want that, but no, <laughs> there's there's... got to be someone's got to make it. Someone else has been in my situation. Yeah. I do have to pull a Marco Rubio when I want to drink though. I don't know if that if that reference transfers to to the north, but I think I saw a tweet with it. Okay. Oh, I, it looked it looked more like like he was drinking vodka or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> what are you drinking? You got your beer open? Yes. Uh, well, not open. I better open it. You start. Uh, I'm gonna take you on a little journey to start. Yes. Because uh, I didn't get my first choice here for this episode. Uh, oh, uh, you'll think I'm talking about something else, but I'm not talking about that. Um. So. I was out in Hershey, PA, like a couple weeks ago, for unrelated space business, non-space business, and there's a brewery out there called Trogues, which is an Eastern Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania, uh, steady, old steady. And around this time of the year, they brew one called Mad Elf. I don't know if you've heard of Mad Elf. It is somewhat infamous in at least this region. Um, Christmassy kind of beer. Brew it once a year. That is 14% alcohol. Yeah. So I figured Yikes. it would be, you know, I was there and I figured it's, you know, December, why not? But my local place, they only sell them in cases. So you really got to be committed to, to that <laughs> much alcohol. And they, they were out. So was not able to land that one, um, but did want to give it a shout out because that's good. But I've got a Walt Witt here, which is Wait. a uh, obviously local. I don't know if you know Walt Whitman. But he is an American poet. That yeah, I'll say. I think the name sounded familiar. Yeah. yeah, he was like born in New York, but he ended up he lived down in Camden, New Jersey, at the towards the end of his life, and so we got like a bridge in Philly named after him and whatnot. So this is a unfiltered Belgian style white ale, Walt Wit. Okay. And it's um pretty good, ale brewed with grapefruit peel and chamomile, and it tastes pretty lovely. Wow, that's a that's a full flavor there. Yeah, it's it's, like a it's pretty nice. Cornucopia flavor. I don't know if you're into like the unfiltered things, but I can, I I do like them, but I just have to like I can have one, and then I gotta like not yeah. for a whole week have another one. Like it's on that topic. My backup is a Pennsylvania Pale Ale. <laughs> so <laughs> to, to, to clear it out. <laughs> yeah, these are both by Philadelphia Brewing Company. This one's pretty tasty, and it's uh you know Pennsylvania Pale Ale PPA, which is also the acronym of the infamous parking authority here in Philadelphia. So. <laughs> Brings about good memories of that $76 parking ticket or whatever you got, you know. This is like the most local beer you could have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
It's like you just you just told me a whole story and I didn't know any of it. I was like, <laughs> There's three people out there, I think, that are like, oh man, that's it. That's all I got. Yeah. I love that. So I love that since we live so far apart that like I just have never even heard of these things. So we're gonna like learn about so many new beers. Um, but not in that vein. I have something different here. So I went out looking and I found a Chinese beer. Oh yeah, I love that. It's called Tsingtao. I love that one. Have you tried it? It's I have, yeah. Pretty like it's pretty like widespread. It's like yeah, it's the like Heineken the... of Chinese totally. beers. Like it's yeah. So because uh, I don't really know anything about it, and I have a couple of friends at work who are are Chinese, and so I was like, "What do I get? What do I get?" <laughs> you know, I have no idea. And, they were just like, and they're like, "Get the standard." Yeah, just like I don't want to freak you out too much, so just get this like you know. So uh, there was this one, there was another one I had to choose from, and this is the one that came in bottles. And I just like I have a, a thing against cans. I don't, I just can't do beers in a can. It's like I don't know, it's against my nature. I'm I'm into it. <laughs> so yeah, this is Singtao. It is a uh, I don't know what kind of beer is it. Just a, a lager, I guess. It doesn't say on the bottle doesn't but, matter that's yeah. the point yeah but uh yeah it's kind of like um it's kind of like corona really it's like just like the plainest of beers which is just very not what i normally drink i'm such like a craft beer like nut that like this is very very different for me <laughs> so yeah but i had to get two of them here because they're not very strong yeah yeah and you don't have any mad elf out there no, no Mad so. Elf at all. This is this is one third of a Mad Elf. <laughs> but yeah, but I got Chinese beer because we're going to talk about China. Yeah, you've today. been pumped up about this. Yes, I wanted to talk to someone about China. <laughs> Did, was there any particular, uh, I've been wondering, like, was there any particular incident that happened this month that you were like, we got to talk about China? Or was it merely the fact that China has been launching a lot and there is a complete lack of anything else going on right now? <laughs> well I, I maybe a bit of both i guess because like i i've been sort of intrigued by like the what the chinese space program you know because it's such a mystery right so like i it's just sort of captivated me i probably for years now um but there's like nothing in you know our mainstream circles that's like always going on about china there's like the one guy on twitter who gets you the news every yep, once in a while totally. it's like <laughs> you know what i'm talking there's, about there's two people there's andrew jones who writes for gb times yeah but there's yeah. a there's i have to look up the twitter feed and put it in the notes um i think it's like china space flight is like the name of it i forget what the exact handle is but it tweets only in chinese which i don't know how to read at all but it's always got great <laughs> photos and it was like the account that had the video of the one launch from like way too freaking close to oh, the right. launch site. <laughs> like basically the dude was in the launch gantry, like filming this <laughs> launch, which is horrifying because it's like a hypergolic launch vehicle or something. Uh, but that was the account that I saw that uh, video from. So those are the two that you kind of, yeah, it's completely impenetrable. Um, <laughs> it's like, don't fail me now, Twitter translate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I always try that. And it's like, I, I get, it's like, basically what i can read out of the photo anyway like it's a rocket yeah. you know it's yeah like not yeah, yeah. useful beyond that there's a there's a japanese one like that too that's it's an account for the um the martian moons explorer account oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's always it's always in japanese i'm just like okay what's going on here <laughs> cool photos though yeah yeah really great renders so yeah it's interesting that you take the impenetrability and are intrigued by it whereas 
I've had people ask, like, why don't you talk about China more? And it's like, because I can't speculate about China. Like, there's no, I feel like you can only really, uh, it might be being unfair at this point, because there are some interesting things coming up, which we'll get to, but it feels so impenetrable that it's, like, not worth trying to speculate about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does make for some good history. Yes, it does. Um, do you want to talk letters first? We got some good emails. You want to do letters now? I don't know. Oh, Where like a little letters? follow-up segment? I can do that. Yeah, let's do that. Like, like what's our format? Yeah, you if you want to there? totally destroy the great segue that you had from the Chinese <laughs> beer to, to China, sure. Um, There's yeah. no rules here. We no, no. We no, I, I think you're right, because like a lot of these are follow-up, so I feel like let's do them before we get to the new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, I've got all the emails here. We were trying to be self-deprecating last time, and turns out that milked out a lot of great emails from people. Yeah. So, uh, first one here from Grant that I'm going to read. Hey guys, my name is Grant. I've listened to both the shows right from the beginning, but this one is something I can really get into. I'm a space cadet through and through, and my day job is building brewery equipment for the craft brewing industry. In fact, I've built components for House Sound, Mill Street, and Yards. Thanks for the Centaur book pick. I'm looking forward to it. Centaurs are essentially beer tanks that have been optimized for weight with an RL10 on the bottom. Cheers, Grant. I, I don't know that there's a more perfect email for this that particular show but this show in general <laughs> yeah exactly i was like can this is this is like this is the show custom made for grant congratulations it's like we grant. sat down and we were like grant what kind of show would you like you deserve a podcast <laughs> uh next one unless you got anything else for grant no no i um that's that's it. oh was he was he uh the official listener number two did we i think he was the one right is that the first one we got that was the we first called one a, because we were like, Shane, you were our first last oh, episode. Right, like, right, Shane, right, right. You're, you're number one. And then we got kind of a flurry of emails like requesting number two status. And I think Grant, Grant was, was the official number yeah. two. Congrats, Grant. Uh, Good work. Now let me read Jeff's email, taking oh, you to no. task. <laughs> this I is got, one where I screwed up. I'm just going gonna, gonna to be embarrassed. No, this is just like, you know, nitpicking or whatever. Not even, just corrections. Hi, guys. Loving the new show. A couple little corrections from one line of episode two. Number one, University of Colorado is CU, not UC. UC means California, and we Coloradans take great offense to being equated with Californians. Number two, Insight doesn't live at CU. It was built by Lockheed Martin Space Systems in Littleton, south of Denver. Probably sound like I'm nitpicking, but collection of details that he may or may not want read on the air. So he sent in the corrections. Thank you, Jeff. I always love correcting Jake. <laughs> I'll just say this. I think people from Colorado and people from California are both awesome. So That's fair, that's fair. Yeah. I can't believe I screwed up CU Boulder though. Like, ah, I feel dumb. That's all right. It's yeah. a confusing name. They should have thought better about that. <laughs> but they I like how like they, they weren't even at all involved in this. We were talking about Insight. Insight clearly doesn't live there, as I've also been corrected on. And I just like pull them into this conversation for no reason and then still they're saying their name wrong. <laughs> Here, see you, see you, Boulder. We got one from Thorben. It's German. I know that. He's from Berlin. I'm, I, that one's a long one that I'm not going to particularly read the whole thing, but um, kind of awesome just to hear from people all over the place. So I wanted to say hello to him. That's all I got one there. Yeah. Um, Guten Tag. We got one from Jerry asking uh, about Tori Bruno. He was saying that's something that he's found interesting in our search for topics. Um, in any case, you need an idea for any show. I'd like to learn more about Tony Bruno. 
While it's not possible to outcompete Musk on Twitter, Tory does his own thing and it's accessible and has a great sense of humor. It's unimaginable that a CEO of the military industrial complex would behave like this, but he does. And I fully agree. He's quite awesome. He's a pretty interesting kind of guy that has been around Lockheed and, and the like for so long, worked on so many historic launch vehicles and all sorts of different projects that it's just like crazy that he's still central to it all, which I think, you know, that to his credit, that's probably why he's been such a good CEO for ULA through this transition period. Yeah. And after today's uh, Tesla to Mars mix up, I'm, I might be coming out and saying that he uh, isn't getting shown up by Musk on Twitter. I think he's doing a little bit better of a job uh, so far this weekend. I would not disagree. <laughs> uh, we got one from Matt asking if we're going to make actual patches of the podcast logo and sell it. He said, sell it as part of the Miko store. To which I say, that is exactly why I created this podcast, to extract all monetary value of it from Jake through some other mechanisms. But maybe. We'll, we'll look into it. I think we should definitely make patches. I'm just mostly they, concerned about, like, what, how do we handle the money, you know? Well, let's just make them, like, $1,000 each, and then it's <laughs> worth fair. it to, like, do the wire transfers and stuff. I like it. Uh, Philip is our last email of the day, which is the best one. Hi, guys. My name is Philip, and I am your organic listener. Yes! This is something that we speculated about last week was like, I don't know, we got, or last week, last month, we were like, who's going to find this as the podcast entry form for this? But <laughs> Philip did it. He said, I downloaded the podcast this week when I was looking for more space podcasts to listen to. I had exhausted my audiobooks for the month and got all caught up on my usual podcast. I've seen both of your shows and my other suggestions, but for whatever reason, didn't download an episode of them. I was attracted by this here lovely logo. And I saw Space and Beer and thought, two of my loves. So thank you. I listened to it, episode two, on my two and a half hour drive for Thanksgiving. Now I'm going to check out your other podcast, Philip. Philip, you are the best. You're awesome. But I have to say, we clearly have to step up our marketing game, though, if, if this guy was out there like looking for more space podcasts and didn't find any of our yeah. other ones. <laughs> all right. That's all of our emails. So thanks, everybody, for uh, writing in. That was pretty great stuff. Yeah, and speaking of letters, so China, just segue that one back. Yeah. Okay, so, yes, I really wanted to talk about China, and it is mostly because I really, really, really love the story, the the, his, the historical background of the Chinese space program, which is something that I've wanted to share in, in a bigger, more personal format, so I'm hijacking our podcast to do it. I hope you're not mad about it. No, I like But you this. know a lot of... You know a lot about the other stuff, like the the recent stuff, which I am not good at. So that's where you're going to jump in. But um, so Chinese space program is I'm going to start with a story of a guy. And I, I'll, I've tried very hard to learn the pronunciation right so that I can at least sound somewhat smart. But I think it's Tian Chusen, which is he's the father of the, of the Chinese space program. But but he's, the story goes way back than that. So he's born in 1911. He grew up in China, uh, Beijing and Shanghai, and he came to the United States on um, something called a Boxer Indemnity Scholarship. So if you know anything about Chinese history, there's the Boxer Rebellion in the 19th century, and the U.S. had to get involved, and then the aggressors lost, so there was like reparations, and the U.S. got some money. So they made this fund, and they actually would educate Chinese uh, students on like scholarships and stuff. So Chen comes over on this scholarship. He goes to MIT, gets a degree, and then he uh, decides that uh, he wants to come to Caltech and get his uh, his doctorate. 
Now, Caltech, is that the one in Colorado? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay. oh, yeah. Caltech University in, in Littleton. Um, <laughs> you threw me off my, my game sorry, here. Sorry. I, had a, I had a rhythm. Okay, so uh, this is uh, about 1935, okay? So he comes to Caltech, and he gets to study under Theodore von Karman, who... Everyone who listens to space podcasts or reads about space should eventually learn that name. That's the same name as the Carmen, uh, the Carmen line, where space starts. He's the guy that figures that out, I guess. I actually don't know the story about that. But his name's on it, so he probably has something to do with it. <laughs> I'll, go on, I'll go on a limb on that one. Yeah, right? we, can't, we can't follow all these rabbit holes. <laughs> no, there's only so many Wikipedia tabs I can have open at one time. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so uh, von Karman was the director of the um, Guggenheim Aeronautical Lab. So he's like a famous aerodynamicist, right? So not exactly space, but aerodynamics, which is, which is you know, related. Um, and he had a bunch of students uh, that Tian kind of fell in line with. So there's some, some big names here from a long time ago space. You got uh, Ed Foreman, Jack Parsons, Frank Molina. Um, and if you want, if you want rabbit holes, go look these guys up because they have some weird stories. Especially Jack Parsons. If you want to weird, <laughs> if you want to read about a weird dude, Jack Parsons. It's like the history of Jack Parsons is like interwoven between like learning how to build rockets and like weird cult religion things. Whoa! It's like it's like weird stuff. So whoa. Yeah, like oh man, like his his wife like leaves him for L. Ron Hubbard and stuff like that Whoa. level, like yeah. <laughs> wow. So, okay, future podcast. We're not going to get down podcast. that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, that's a, episode four <laughs> is the story of Jack Parsons. <laughs> but anyway, so he falls in line with this crew, and these guys are just like the perfect rocket geeks. They're just like we're going to figure out how to fly rockets, and. They wanted the university to fund them, but they didn't really, you know, it's hard to do in 1935 when rockets are still kind of a weird new new technology, right? But they, they do it anyway, and they're they're off in a place called uh, Arroyo Seco, which is like this dry stream bed north of Pasadena. And they just light stuff up, and they're, they're blowing stuff up all the time. So they're so crazy that around campus they become known as the Suicide Squad. So the the original Suicide Squad. Yeah, I was going to say, is that is that IP still available? Because... <laughs> I don't think it is. I think it's been been sold off for grant money. Um, so the official name of the group was the Guggenheim Aeronautical Lab under Caltech Institute of Technology. So GALSIT, maybe we'll call it that. I don't know. I won't. But Rocket Research Group, something like that. They eventually get some funding. So it's like World War II. Um, they had a lot of weird projects. And uh, the the military really got involved because... In the middle of World War II, they they get you know news of the German V two happening in Europe, and the United States is freaking out because they have to get their own missiles. So they like contract this group to start developing some stuff. And at this point, they change the name of GALSIT or whatever awful acronym it is to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And yes, it's that Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So this is how it starts. It's literally just like the bunch of people blowing stuff up outside the university, formerly a Suicide Squad. They start JPL and they invent a bunch of wacko rocket stuff. So like those jet assisted takeoff ones with the weird, uh, like, like rocket planes, basically. Yeah. Like so um, obviously a crazy poor design that like is like useful in some senses, but I think the best one was like the B-52, uh, was it B-52, right? That had a JATO pack. I think there was maybe. one 
and it's amazing. There's some YouTube videos. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually pretty uh, we crazy. may let me just mention we might be trying something new on this episode of the podcast. If you look at your podcast player right now, there may be an image of the thing that I'm talking about showing up instead of the album art. If not, this will be cut from the show. Okay. Yeah. I love the I love the foreshadowing. Okay. Um yeah, so they take the yeah the Jado thing is cool. They um invent like those early early rockets, the the corporal or whatever, which I think led to what was it like Sergeant and and all those early early uh, solid rockets. I think wasn't it um the first satellite in the U.S. Uh, Explorer One wasn't it launched like the upper stage was like a bunch of those like corporals like literally just like duct taped together. I feel like it was like the, the sounds top roughly stage on it. familiar. Yeah, hmm. I should know that better, but yeah. Anyway, so they land some contracts. They're developing some rockets. Uh, and then actually, some of these guys, so Von Karman and, and like Molina and Parsons, they actually sp- kind of not split off, but they, they actually started a company to start building these rockets for the military. And it was called Aerojet, which is also the Aerojet we know today. So this is like ground, this is like breeding ground for like all this space stuff is happening right this time. So yeah, anyway, so uh, Chen takes this time to learn all about rockets and he even got to go at the end of the war he went to germany with von Karman to like you know look at all the rocket stuff and try and learn what they could and there's this great story of, of uh you know von Karman found his doctoral advisor who was working for the nazis and the two of them like interrogated him together so you have like the nazi guy who taught von Karman and von Karman who's teaching chen and it's like you know like the the family tree of science right there. And they like had this whole interrogation thing, which is pretty cool. Such a weird time to, to be alive anyway. So, uh, they come back to the U S the war is over. Um, Chen goes back to MIT, does some teaching. He has a couple kids there. Yeah. Comes back to Caltech, does some more teaching there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, he went to China and got married and then he came back. So he was just kind of living his life and it, it's tough to tell, but it looks like he was pretty interested in staying in the United States. But then some crazy stuff happened. And this is where the story gets even better if it wasn't already good for you. So it's uh, 1950 and it's the time of McCarthyism. So it's the, it was the second red scare, right? So the war is over. Communism is now the big threat. Everyone was really panicky. And, uh, you know, like if you think about, this is like that year specifically was pretty crazy because at that time you had the uh, in in China you had the the civil war so that was where communism took hold in China in 1949. Um, Soviets have their first nuclear test that year in 49. Uh, China goes into the Korea into Korea in 1950, so there's more tensions there. And then uh, of course in Germany in Berlin you have kind of ground zero for the for the the conflict right because you got berlin divided on the wall so it was a pretty crazy time and everyone's panicking and uh you know if you know where i'm going with this you have chen who is a chinese rocket engineer in the united states so he's a communist national in one way and he's working right here on american soil so things got a little uh scary so there was already allegations that he was a communist of course um but they didn't take him too seriously uh but eventually in 1950 they finally you know, got worried enough, they decided to do something. So they like revoke his security clearance and they take him in for questioning. And, uh, it gets pretty scary in 1915. He actually spends a little bit of time in jail, um, under, under questioning. Eventually he gets out of jail, but he goes on like house arrest and he spends five years basically like not able to work, not able to leave his home, 
constantly being like questioned and stuff by the FBI. And it's not very good for him. Although, strangely enough, he did manage to like write another whatever manifesto of physics or some it was like some cybernetics book and he's just like yeah i'll just you know spit this out while i have all I this got time, some time I guess. so <laughs> um yeah and it's apparently like a pretty good book but uh, i don't know anything about this uh this system stuff anyway so 1955 uh he finally gets freed i guess basically there's uh some diplomacy going on between the u.s and china and they actually exchange him for prisoners from the korean war so they let him go and he takes his family, gets on a boat, heads back to China, and the United States never sees him again. So it's, like, it's just such. I don't want to derail your your uh, story too much, but this <laughs> is this is the point in the story when you start running like alternate history timelines through yes. your head, and it's yeah. just it, it's just so sad. Like I mean, it's I think long run like things that happen from here maybe good for the world, but yada yada. Like, it's just sad when you think of somebody so foundational to the early aerospace programs in the world who can't work for five years, is taken out of the team that they were working with, like, all of the stuff that they've worked on at that point, and at a moment when that content is becoming, like, the most important knowledge in the world on a grand scale, it's just, like, it's crazy the implications that just that couple of minutes of storyline really tell in it. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. I mean, and forget the work that he maybe would have done, but he was also a full time teacher. So imagine the students that missed out on on his you know instruction. Like what would yeah. they have done, right? Like it it just cascades. It's crazy, crazy to think about. Uh, yeah. So he goes back to China, and in 1956, this is uh, basically when Mao Zedong decides if China wants to be a power, we need rockets, we need missiles, we need nukes. And so he builds something called... Doesn't sound familiar at all. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound at all familiar. Uh, He builds something called the Fifth Academy, which is where they're going to centralize this research. And he needs someone to run it. And guess who shows up on a boat in 1955? None other than Jen Chusen. So he puts him in charge of it. And basically, through the the end of the 50s, uh, he he helps... And this is crazy to think about. Like, he just builds a space program. He takes a country which is like... You know, it's 1955, so it's only been the Republic of China for, like, six years. It's an agrarian society. (laughs) And he's like, well, we're going to have rockets now, and we're going to need all this metalworks and all this fuel production and computers and advanced... Like, it's it's crazy what he just builds from scratch. Um, They build the first launch site, so Jiquan was built then in uh, 1958. They start developing the early Chinese rockets, the Dongfeng. Um, They're, like, ICBMs, basically. Yeah. Maybe not that long, just medium range missiles or whatever. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's really cool. And th- this is another <laughs> another place where the story kind of merges because at this time, uh, China and the USSR are like buddies, right? So they're like they're both communists. They signed this agreement in 1950 to be friends, and so the the Soviets are feeding them rocket technology. So they get like an early version of the R two, and they get uh, some of the. Uh, like, R1, R2, and some other rocket they gave them. And they send people over there to train them and, and teach them all this stuff. So the, the Chinese are basically copying these these uh, these missiles. And so the Dongfeng kind of ended up being um, kind of a copy of that. But in 1960, it like all severs because there's this thing called the Sino-Soviet split. And it's basically, 
I, I don't know this history too well, but basically from what I read, it looks like Mao Zedong thought that uh, Khrushchev was not communist enough and said, right. we're done. <laughs> you're you're, yeah. you're well, a hippie was, communist. Yeah, like, he was like a revisionist Marxist. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's like really yeah. niche kind of worries at that point. <laughs> this is this is old school communism on this <laughs> side of the border. So none of this hipster new stuff. Um, but yeah, so 1960, they sever with with the Soviets. And from then on, it's 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 all China. Right. So um, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, I was reading about uh, how fast they developed after that. And it was like they went when they were working on the nuclear bomb. It was like less than three years. They went from yeah. start to a nuclear test, which was about twice as fast as the U.S. or, or the Soviets did it. So that kind of shows you that sort of determined drive that they that they have over there. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Uh, yeah. So submarine missiles they get going. Another launch site. They actually had a uh, a human spaceflight program in the seventies. Believe it or not, they didn't even have an orbital rocket quite yet. But they they are in the sixties. Sorry. So they actually selected astronauts, which is crazy. I don't know why why they went ahead of that. They were a little little ahead of the game there. But uh, yeah. Um, well, everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. I so, guess. Yeah. Come on. Um. So they had their first successful orbital launch in 1970. So that was on the original Long March 1, the Changzheng 1, the predecessor of all the current rockets that they use now. Um, and it put this little goofy orb into space that just literally circled the Earth and played communist music on the radio. It's like the... <laughs> it's the most... I, I wish we had more of that. <laughs> was it the Not East communist Red music, just like, you know... Let's do a thing that plays music. And it's like a music box in orbit. I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> I don't want to get too close to our topic of that we were getting heated about earlier today about dumb things in orbit, but uh <laughs> let it go. <laughs> yeah, it's oh that's mm. Yeah, well we're gonna see that in January, right? Yeah. Um yeah, and then uh they developed some other stuff at this time too. Uh they actually developed um you know, they get into the whole spy satellite thing, obviously. But they actually came up with some reentry technology. So their their spy satellites, they would actually send them up, take pictures, and then bring them back to Earth and collect them, which is like the most old school way to do it ever. Yeah. And, and is awesome. And apparently they had like this this like really like ghetto uh, uh, like reentry material, like the uh, the ablative heat shield. It was just like wood, basically. They yeah, figured out like, some way to like if we put enough of this, we can just blast through yeah, as like quick as possible. Cork or something, or I don't know, bamboo. I don't know what it was, but they. They uh they figured out some sort of thing that they they scrammed in there to have this really cheap uh, um reentry uh, shield. Uh, but then things kind of go dark. So 1976 is when Mao died, and there's like this whole cultural revolution thing going on, and uh, it wasn't good for China, and so the space program suffered, and it kind of went into this dark period for for quite a while. But it re- it really died to a certain extent. Like the thing that yeah. was reborn was you know it had heritage but it was a new era uh at that point like a hard reset almost um you know obviously not for certain things like launch centers and some of the hardware that they still had around but it it definitely there's not a whole lot of continuity outside of whatever was left over at that point yeah yeah you know and i think about it because uh so it kind of dies around Mao's death but it it was going downhill from there uh, before that so if you think say 1973 74 that era and it doesn't really start up again till like late 80s so it's kind of almost 15 years where there's not much going on and 
if you think about the talent that would have phased out by then, that's something that would really, uh, you know, affect. And that's actually one of the one of the things in the the few times where I'm actually defending the SLS program, and people say it should just be scrapped. I say, well, I wouldn't cancel it today if you put me in charge of NASA and I had ultimate authority. I would not cancel it today because that's what I'd be afraid is happen. Is that everyone would leave, you'd lose all that talent. Like you gotta gracefully move it into something, right? And that did not happen in China. And even for our our friend uh, Qian here, who who is still working at this time, he he tried to hang on to it, but uh, I guess you know you lose all the people, you lose all the people, which yeah. is which is unfortunate. Funding so. and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, anyway, they they do get back uh, late eighties, and they actually do it in a commercial fashion, which is very interesting. It's kind of not Chinese in a way, but but in another way, very very Chinese how they do it. Because Challenger blows up in eighty six, and uh, they had you know the early shuttle had the the uh, the whole plan was that they they'd cram everything on it. It was like one vehicle to rule them all, right? And so they're packing all these commercial satellites on there. But after the accident they decided that they would not put commercial satellites on the shuttle anymore. So now you have all these satellites in the backlog and no launchers to, to, to fire them off. So China decides to jump in and pick up some of the slack. And they, uh, they did it with Long March 2. Uh, 2C and 2E, I think, were the ones that they were really yep. Yep. Uh, launching around that time. Um, so they got like uh, the the first one they did was AsiaSat one. This I, I love the story. This, this is the like, raddest so. piece of space hardware of all <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> so it goes up on, on shuttle. I think it was before Challenger, like eighty three, maybe. Yeah, because it was a it was a STS forty one something mission. Yeah, which was yeah. So the STS fiscal year eighty four. That's where the four <laughs> comes from, and it was one dash whatever the letter was because we were scared of the number thirteen. That's the dumbest story. Yeah. Uh, so they launched it on shuttle, and they launched. There was two like very similar satellites, those kind of like old Hughes satellites, I think they were. And they they launched two, and both of them had those. Uh, was it Pam Pam Payload B, Assist a, module? Payload yeah. Assist module. Both of them had these, these solid rocket kind of kick motors that would put it up to geo, and they both failed. And so these satellites are just stuck in low Earth orbit. They low-ish. leave them up there, lowish orbit. Yeah. They bring shuttle back down. They get through. Uh, they got through Challenger and then came back after and picked them up. I think. Yeah, it so was. It was like the same up. year. I think, like maybe like the next calendar year. It was very quickly. This wasn't a very was long it? time period between oh. the two, the launch and the recovery. I guess because yeah, they decay pretty bad, right? They brought so it they down, so it was left in like I think the the highest point in the orbits were like six hundred miles or something like that. They mm. the operators brought it down so that shuttle could reach it to do what you're about right. to tell us right 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 yeah okay so they send second shuttle up and they collect the satellites and they had to like invent this whole like grapple thing with the jetpacks so they're like it was yeah. like the most awesome space like you gotta watch the pictures look at the pictures watch the videos or whatever and they're just like driving around this like space bike and picking up satellites and they dock them back in the shuttle bring them back down and i think oh, wait, it was wait, the insurance the best company. part because there was a photo in orbit of I forget who the astronaut was, oh, yeah. but he was holding a for sale sign with the satellite, joking, sorta, sorta joking, sorta joking. Um, I think because it was the insurance company that funded the mission, right? Yeah, I don't think they did the full mission, or but part like of it or most of it, yeah, or something. However, yeah, I, that works. Which I don't really get because shuttle flights were so expensive. Yeah, but... yeah, if inflation, money. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. <laughs> 
So they bring the satellites home. Now they have two satellites. I think insurance had paid for replacements, so they just kind of like belong to the insurance company. And then they sell them again and refurbish them. And one of them becomes AsiaSat-1. And uh, China launches it as their first commercial payload. So it goes back to space. At this point, this is uh, one thing that I want to mention is the, the Intelsat 708 launch. Um, this was the one where immediately after, I don't even think it cleared the tower yet, the rocket pitched way over and crashed, like, I think it was a mile from the launch pad into this village. Right. Six people died, though there was, like, rumors that it was, like, hundreds, uh, crashed into a village of a thousand, but then it sounds like the village was actually, um, evacuated, so there may not, there may have just been, like, the six deaths or whatever, um, but That's like was... the most Chinese thing ever. They're like, we're going to launch a rocket. There's a village there. Just get yeah. everyone out of the village for a bit. <laughs> Don't worry about it too much. It's like a mile away. Not a big deal. Yeah, they're pretty fast and loose with the trajectories and, and all that. But um, this was a huge moment. And this was, let me look up what the data this was. It was 1996. So very shortly after mm, okay. all of this. Um, but I think it, it does set up a lot of where we're at today overall because it was an Intel set payload and the from what i hear there was like actually substantial parts of the satellite that were still intact so much so that um satellite was built by ssl space systems Laurel. so much so intact that they sent people out to recover parts of the satellite because there was an encryption decryption module on board which they didn't want falling into chinese hands um there was a lot of like politi- politicking that came out of this because um we the government US government like okayed these launches on Chinese satellites or Chinese uh, launch vehicles this one went poorly they may have gotten an encryption decryption module um defense department says that's not that bad because of the keys that were used technical detail that you can read if you want to hear about encryption overall the US government was not happy about this and ended up expanding the um ITAR, International Treaty of Arms Regulation, um, expanding those regulations quite a bit to effectively eliminate the ability for U.S. companies to launch on Chinese launchers. Um, Expanding ITAR so much so that the Europeans accuse the U.S., and in my view, rightly so, of saying, you're actually not expanding these enough, or you're, you're not expanding these to limit technology exports to china you're expanding it so much to hurt china by not allowing them to be used their launchers to be used and you're actually not that worried about technology transfer you're worried about you know losing market to china and all that kind of stuff so it was such an interesting time you know 86 to 96 going from all the commercial payloads on on shuttle challenger happens we'll let some fly on china this accident happens which is a horrible accident um but it was used in kind of a like you know, opportunistic way to limit the ability for companies to launch with China in a way that maybe at the time they did have some reason, but I think the effect of that has still lived on to this point today in a very probably harmful way for China and arguably for the community at large. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is kind of where it all started, the whole drama between the U.S. and China, right? Because that yeah. was ITAR, I think I wrote down was, uh, yeah, it was like, 1990-ish and there was like a period where like it was applicable to satellites but then not and then satellites again 
And then when did when did they actually forbid NASA from working with them? It was in it might have been right after that accident. It might have been. Yeah. And and they've stepped that up like several times since I'm trying to look for the exact dates. I mean, like the dates have 2000s in front of them in some of these cases. Like we're still even so far as like last year, we've been expanding these regulations. Um, And I think there was like three or four different times when we just moved the bar up another notch and said like satellite components are now part of ITAR. And this particular satellite component is now part of ITAR um, to the point where there's companies in Europe working to recreate those parts to sell them to China and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I I read that too. They were like, I mean, like they were marketing like an ITAR free satellite or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, man, the stuff that oh, it just boggles my mind sometimes, the, the things that, you know, we do to. It's it's a lot around. of politicking. Like it, it, yeah. it really is. And, and it's. I brought that up not to derail us completely, but to say that like the things that the the trends that are in play today and the weird politics that exist between the U.S. and China and everyone else in space industry were set up 20 years ago at this point. Yeah. And that's kind of like it's amazing that it's gone on that long and is still being doubled down on. Getting old. Sure is. Anyway, so let's let's talk a little bit about the humans before we get into future stuff. So the astronauts they picked in 1972 are no longer qualified to fly, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, so in 1992, they pick a whole new, uh, or no, sorry, they they start the the new program in 92. They don't pick astronauts till 98, um, but they start developing uh, the Shenzhou or Shen Shenzhou, I think you say Shenzhou spacecraft, uh, which is completely developed from Soyuz. So back in this time, now that the Soviets are gone, they're they're a little bit more on friendly terms with Russia again, and they actually get a Soyuz spacecraft and they build Shenzhou to to match it. It's actually a little bit bigger, which is and a little more advanced, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh you know, they actually had like solar panels on the on the orbital module and stuff, which is pretty cool. Uh and they um so they they build this new spacecraft and it flies first time in 1999, which was the 50th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, uh, and then uh, they fly their first astronauts in 2003, which is uh, pretty cool. It's a it's a pretty brisk timeline. I think that's actually pretty uh, accomplished. I mean, start in 92, and you're flying people in 03. What's the compare that to some of the uh, American companies operating today, right? When did when did SpaceX and uh, Boeing agree to to build a spacecraft? Yeah, I think 20... they'll beat the I think they'll beat that timeline, but not by as much as people would like. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Shenzhou has now made 11 launches. Seven of them have had crew. They've had spacewalks. They've had space stations. Uh, so the crewed spaceflight program is is humming along pretty good. Um, and then I, I found a good story. So after that first flight, the, the first Chinese astronaut, uh, Yang Liwei, um, he returned to Earth, and he went to Chen Shushin's house, where he was, he's an old man at this time. He retired in 1990, I think, but he's was still working from home like like you do um and uh yeah he went to visit him so there's i watched this documentary and there there's this astronaut in this room and the guy's old and withered in the bed and uh must have been a pretty cool conversation yeah to, totally you know it's kind of like a fly in you know, the wall moment you know yeah exactly if if you could understand it <laughs> yeah, it would mostly be like that twitter feed i was talking about earlier It'd be like wow this yeah. looks awesome this looks yeah. like a really cool <laughs> thing that I, i'm experiencing from context i think this is a good <laughs> conversation <laughs> i think that might he may have a tear in his eye at this point. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I watched this documentary. Of course, you know, it's a it's a Chinese uh, documentary, so I'm not sure how how true it was because it was very like rah rah rah. China is the best, and that's that's how it goes sometimes. But it sounds like Chen was a pretty cool guy right to the end. I mean, he died in um, 2009, I believe. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, uh, he got to see all this, right? So same thing. He starts this whole space program and by the time he dies, they're, they're sending people to space, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we've got, there's some really cool stuff for human space flight coming up. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I mean, it's still plans at this point, but, uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, we'll get into like current and future stuff. Cause I think there's a little bit of that that crosses over at this point, but really like there's a couple of trends to keep your eye on following China. Um, number one is there is a new satellite launch center that they've been using that is going to be very important to them um, for all of the future endeavors. Is the Wenchang Satellite Launch Center. It's in the South China Sea on an island. Um, it's at 19 degrees north, uh, so very low latitude. That's pretty good. Which, yeah, it's lower than Canaveral. Yeah. Um, you know, the only things that beat it are like India's is thirteen ish, Koru is five. Um, you know, if you count Kwajalein is like nine nine degrees north. Uh but but everything else is much higher than that. So that's just an important note when you're thinking about, you know, future uh architectures that you might use with staging in Leo or or fuel depots or anything like that. They are a very low latitude launch center for uh these larger rockets that i'll talk about in a second um and the rockets are really the biggest component that they're working on right now yeah. and they're in the middle of this huge transition all of the the launch vehicles that we were talking about in history and still operating today are all hypergolic fueled so they're all using udmh and n204 um so toxic you know stuff. super super toxic stuff that is like crazy explosive to the point where you know you don't you can pressure fed pressure feed engines instead of having turbo pumps and all that kind of stuff you know storable so it's very easy to use in space um also you know these were developed out of uh icbms and things like that which typically use storable propellants in that way but when you're looking to move into a more advanced era of space exploration and and focus it on space exploration you want to move towards different kinds of fuels so they are in the midst of this transition to get all of these old launch vehicles um, put aside, really, and moved on to a new generation of things. So the uh, couple that, that you will want to listen in on, and they have some new small set launchers like Long March 11 and things like that that you'll want to just keep up on if you're interested in launch vehicles. But the three that are really going to be important are the Long March 5, which had its first flight back in 2016, just about a year ago. Um, this is a monster, monster rocket. It matches. It's a. It's just a little bit less than Delta IV heavy, uh, right. in terms of payload capacity. So very, very large launch vehicle, five meter core stage, burning uh, liquid hydrogen and liquid liquid oxygen. So very, you know, I still don't like that as a first stage uh, engine uh, engine choice, but that's what they're doing. They're doing kind of that Delta IV heavy style where you've got like, you know, Boosters, super right? efficient fuels, and then yeah, they've Strap got ons, yeah. They got four uh, 3.3 meter boosters that are burning RP1 and liquid oxygen, like a very traditional launch vehicle. Those um, are like really, really big strap-on boosters, like three, three meter. Like there's rockets that size, you know. Huge, <laughs> like, yeah. They're they're I think uh, what 
Falcon 9 is like 3.7 or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, so it's almost like a Falcon, a Falcon heavy 9. With <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It really is. Um, th- then this Long March 5 has like a second stage that is there for non-LEO missions. So if something's going to GTO or anything like that, interplanetary, there will be a second stage on the booster. Um, and then there's a hypergolic upper stage that is also used to put things directly into GEO. Um, so this is a very, very advanced launch vehicle that, you know, you could see something like this. Obviously, different architecture looking, different look, different layout or whatever. But this thing would be useful to, like, the U.S. Department of Defense. It meets mm-hmm. a lot of their requirements for very advanced defense missions. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of that usage um, in it. The first flight took something up to GEO as communication satellite. Second launch didn't go so well. There was, like, an issue with the first stage. Um, you could see a plume of smoke towards the end of the first stage burn. It, so it failed. Um, we're waiting on the next one. The next flight was supposed to be Changi 5, which we'll talk about when we get to the lunar stuff. Um, and it will also be used to lift the new core of their new space station. Hmm. So that's going to be like the heavy lifter um, for the time being. For the time being. For the time being. Foreshadowing. Um, the other <laughs> one that's important to talk about is Long March 7. This is designed to replace the Long March 2F, which is the crude uh, the vehicle that they have right now. Yeah. Um, first time they used this was to launch the Tianzhou, which is the cargo spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent that up to Tiangong 2. Um, this is really expected to be like the future workhorse of their lineup because it's, um, you know, it's, it's a very sweet spot kind of payload capacity. It's going to launch crew to, to different destinations in Leo and potentially beyond, depending on how their architectures are. Uh, but this is probably the one you'll see going most often in the next era of Chinese spaceflight. And then the giant one is the Long March 9. This one we still don't really know that much about. It's still in the works. But this is going to have the payload capacity that matches the Saturn V. So this is a big boy. It's going to be 10 meter diameter. Um, it's... <laughs> It's a 10 meter diameter and there's going to be five meter boosters on it. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing is like, you want to talk about a Kerbal so rocket. Big. <laughs> it's, it's basically a long March five, but instead of five meter and three and a half, it's 10 meter and five meter. What's SLS diameter? Seven? Uh, 8.4. 8.4. Yeah. The, the, the first block, the top stage is seven, right? Is that what it is? I'm thinking of IUS. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so eight, something like that. Something close to that. Yeah. 8.4, so 10 meters. That's really big. It's huge, yeah. I mean, that's what Saturn V was. So imagine putting Delta Four cores around a Saturn V. <laughs> but obviously with, like, more thrust in the, on the uh, Delta Four cores. So a huge rocket. This is going to have, you know, 140 metric tons to low Earth orbit, just like Saturn V. At least that's what they're saying now. I don't. They might just be saying that to kind of yeah ev- evoke that uh like image of in your mind but this is the one that's gonna be you know 300 and some feet tall 100 meters tall um this will be the workhorse for when they do missions to the moon missions to mars whatever future stuff they have yeah. um so so really like before we get into the stuff about what they're doing on the in the moon area and the moon area that's what you call it cis lunar space um <laughs> China is kind of one of those things that they have a lot of these plans for the future, so much so that you're hard, it's hard to tell which ones are, are serious enough to talk about. You know, they're saying, like, 
reusable space plane in the 2020s, reusable launch vehicles yeah. by 2030, nuclear shuttle supplied by in-space resources in 2045. Like, um, they have these yeah. grand visions, which, you know, I think that says a lot about where they're at, and where they're going. But when you're, when you're going to watch this day in, day out, <clears throat> be watching for developments at that new launch center, be watching for any of these new generation of launch vehicles uh, making their way towards the pad, because that's really, like, that's the, the bread and butter of this program right now. That's, like, the thing that scares me most about this is that, like, I, I'm not, like, a, a, you know, I'm not, like, yay communism, but, like, in this one situation, the space program, being able to, like, plan long-term and just, like, execute without any debate is super advantageous. Because, <laughs> like, they can just be like, all right, our five-year plan, we're going to develop this launch vehicle, and no one's going to stop us. There's no budget fighting every year. Like, they just lay down and they do it. So some of these things, I always think China's just going to sneak up on us. Like, And they kind of did in some ways, right? Like, I, the, you know, when we talk about, um, well, we'll get the, the robotic stuff, right? Like, the China stuff. I feel like that just kind of came out of nowhere. Like, Yeah, they, they're very advanced missions. That's for yeah. sure. I, I just, well, I, mean, I hesitate to be like, the, you know, great long-term vision. Because I know another large nation that once had this similar stature. Yes. Uh, you know, this this didn't if it pans out, yes, it's good to have long term vision like this, but I, I just typically favor the chaotic aspect of, of you know, every, the way everyone else is working on things that it's just like <laughs> a million things trying a million different ways and <laughs> one of them will hopefully work at some point. But you know, it, it is you you do want to pay attention to their long term vision, but I think they are in such transition state right now that they just have to make it through this next part. Um, yeah, and get some of these other international concerns like the ITAR restrictions, like really clarify yeah, yeah. where they stand on that. So, um, the Changi stuff, Chang Changi, how do you say it? Changu, Changu. I don't know. They they have been some really really cool Chinese. missions. Um, they've land. It's is all focused on the moon right now. Um, so Changa three was the one that landed with a. Soft land on the moon had a nice little rover on it. Uh, one and two were orbiters, you know, doing mapping missions. Two was very interesting um, because it orbited the moon for a while, shot out to was it Earth Moon L two, yeah, and then rounded and then did a flyby of a near near Earth asteroid. Like that's like some dawn level stuff, like <laughs> like multi multi destination. That's pretty. It's impressive. You don't it really you don't is. just stumble into that. You know, like. And to be able to track all of that happening at the same time is like mm-hmm. huge yeah, as well. Yeah, that's the thing. They had to build all of their own ground infrastructure, like all the tracking. They got ships, they got tracking yep. stations, they got all that kind of stuff, which is sort of the infrastructure you don't really think about nowadays. But, you know, because the U.S. has had it for so long right. and Europe kind of has it and they share a lot, right? So there's a lot of help, but like China does it all by themselves, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, a couple of cool Impressive. things coming up with that program. Um, so Chang'e 3 was the one with the little U-2 rover. There was a flight backup for that mission uh, in case something went wrong. Very old school mission architecture in that way. I say old school, but also there was like plenty of Marses that, that uh, had these kind of things. Um, so the flight backup for that, Chang'e 4, is going to go and land on the far side of the moon, which will be very cool. They're, they haven't said exactly where yet, but some people were speculating if it'll be near the South Pole, the Aitken Basin, where everyone's yeah. like intrigued by putting a, a base there of some sort. Um, and with that, they're going to need some communications architecture and they're planning on putting a communications relay 
in Earth Moon L2, which will be like a really, if they are able to put it there, they are able to, you know, use that as a communications relay. You could hypothetically see an instance where that becomes their foot in the door to work with the U.S. or someone on future mm-hmm. missions. You know, just right, right. just relay some communications for us. We'll dip a toe in here if we can, that kind of thing. Um, and then Changi Five, that's the uh, sample return mission that they're working on. This is this was supposed to be the next launch of Long March Five. Um, supposed to go this year. They're having a hard time with the investigation of what went wrong in the second launch, so this is pushed until 2019 Hmm. right now. Uh, But this is going to fly out there, return two kilograms of lunar soil, which will be pretty huge. That's awesome. Two kilograms is not nothing, man. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's that's pretty good stuff. (laughs) I can't help but think of... (laughs) So you know when they're landing on... On the far side, all I can think about is that Bigelow Aerospace comic. Oh my god! <laughs> the landing strip. Again, the landing strip. If my new technology works out, look at your phone right now because I'm going to put some comic strips in there from this Bigelow press conference or whatever that was. <laughs> they're like they're like waving in the American spaceship and like landing landing fee is this many yuan or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> oh man, that's um, some crazy stuff. So yeah, some of the human stuff that they're working on, they have ambitions for heading out to the moon, like I said, with Long March 9 and stuff like that. Um, But they are working on another space station as well. This one, their first two, Tiangong 1 and 2, have just been single modules that they send up there, visit with some crewed spaceships, visit with some cargo spaceships, do space station things. They are planning to launch a new modular space station in 2019. Uh, The first module is going to go up in Long March 5, and then they're going to build onto it from there and that's kind of what their focus is for them for the uh crude crude missions right now it looks kind of like mir is kind of how i see it i think it's roughly half the size of mir but it is that similar shape center node with like all the things sticking out from it right yeah yeah and and it's interesting because uh this is where we'll get into some of the international stuff isa has been sending astronauts to train with china Yeah, yeah yeah and isa has not straight away from saying that like they would be interested in flying up to the Chinese space station. Yeah. Um, so, you know, NASA is forbidden from talking with China about anything do with anything that has any connection to space in any way. Um, and ESA's like, yeah, we'll fly to that space station. And, you know, there's others that are, you know, Russia's still kind of working with China in a lot of ways. And, and really at this point, it's just NASA that's missing out on on any collaboration with china i think i saw the story when they sent uh they sent samantha christopheretti over there i think because she's like uh some sort of genius polyglot she speaks like 15 (laughs) languages or something so they sent (laughs) so she's just over there you know speaking mandarin or whatever uh that's cool so it's interesting because you know iss has a decommissioning date at some point um theoretically this space station from china would be up there um, if ESA goes all in on it, does ESA not extend the ISS? Ergo, do they go all in with China and not extend past 2024? Ergo, they are not building any more Orion service modules. Because that is right now how they have anything to do with the ISS program. There is a barter deal that ESA will build 
service modules for Orion, for SLS, and get access to the ISS through 2024. That deal falls apart because of Chinese Space Station and NASA sitting out in the cold with no service model for Orion. S hits the F. You think that would actually happen? Though? No, like, that's not a, at all. That's a big risk. <laughs> not at all, yeah. <laughs> if you're, you're, you're ESA, you're like, who do I want to please? Yeah, totally. No, okay, so that's a stupid theory of mine. Here's a less stupid, but uh, equally um, maybe dangerous question to ask. Is China repeating our biggest mistake? Our collectively, meaning people that are in the ISS program. Locking up all their funding in a space station? In a space station that doesn't actually serve any part of their future architecture. You know, if, if I was China right now, seeing the, the way that the winds are blowing internationally, I would be going all in on getting to the moon, getting to the lunar surface and setting up a base there, not putting any effort into a low Earth orbiting space station that, you know, uh, is there going to be a fuel depot there? Are they going to integrate it into their architecture at all you know it's in a lot of ways not set up to support that in any facet you know where it's where it's located in leo the inclination that it's located in leo the architecture of it it is you know iss is a great thing for international relations and for research and for being able to you know i my thing is the greatest legacy of the iss is the creation of an industry in low earth orbit because it's Mm -hmm. a foothold that is not China's goal with this. I feel like they are repeating our biggest mistake as an international community in putting so much money into this, and it's going to hurt their ambitions towards the lunar surface. That's one way to look at it. But, you know, I wonder, because, again, because of the way they can centrally plan everything, would they, I mean, if I'm China, what, I want, what I'm doing with this is saying, I'm identifying, like, a list of like very key objectives that I need to get out of the space station. Like I need to learn how to dock big modules. I need to learn on orbit assembly. I need to learn how to have people in space for a long time. I need to learn like, and you just like list out all these things and then they just start knocking them off. And when they're done, they just deorbit it and move on. Like there yeah. wouldn't be any of this, this fuss that we had, right? Where we're, every year it's like, what do we do now? Right, Again, right, right. let's have the same debate over and over and have a big fight over it and then be like, well, we can't make a decision. So we're just going to go with what's already there and continue that for another year. Right. You know, that continuing resolution right. of the space program totally. for basically for 20 years. But I guess that's where I'm getting at though, is like, are they setting themselves up for some cost fallacy? Cause we sure are stuck in one right now. Yeah. In multiple different programs, we being the U.S., but also to some extent, you know, Russia with, I don't, I don't, I'm not too kind to Russia in in the way I look at them. Um, Yeah. And and I just kind of feel like China has so far, they're operating in a way that's kind of like, what has everyone else before us done? And, you know, given where they're at, this would be the time to diverge from that and say, well, like. Maybe let's not set ourselves up for a dead end that sinks a bunch of money. I don't know. Unpopular opinion maybe about the utility of Leo stations in general in this current architecture. But I feel like, to your point of like knocking off the to-do list, I don't know that they need to do a fully modular station that looks like Mir to do any of that. Yeah. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe we should ask the listeners what they think. Yeah. 
Send us an email. We oh the self deprecation worked right. Yeah. We don't know anything about China, and we need your help. So please send us an email about what you think Chinese should do with their space station, or not do it, or not do it. T- tell us if they should send it into the ocean. <laughs> uh, you want to do some picks? Oh, I do want to do. Some you know picks. what? I was before the show. I was like, I'm forgetting something. I'm forgetting something. I meant to grab something for my pick. Okay, so. Do you want me to grab it and then you can do yours, or do you want me to grab it and I'll do mine? Why don't you just go grab? There's it really the only one option I give you. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> my hoodies fall off. This is fun. I'm watch. I'm watching like how you get out of your closet, your professional closet. Oh, I see more soundproofing on the door. Listeners, I'm getting a live view of Anthony's closet. It is white. There is a door. And a handsome podcaster has just emerged back into it. He's hanging up his hoodies, setting things back up, sound dampening. It's looking good. And here he is. I'm back. <laughs> Thank you for narrating. <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Uh, sure, you go first. With all that pomp and circumstance. Yeah, yeah, I'm really curious now because I've never had props on a podcast before. It's just books. Don't worry about oh, it too okay. much. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to have some scale here. So I've been doing a lot of traveling. Still got some coming up. Um, so I've been doing a lot of reading in said travels and finishing off a book that I've been reading for a while. It's just a huge book that I chip away at over time. Two books specifically. Uh, but first one is The Space Shuttle Decision. So this is um, by T.A. Heppenheimer. You can find this one paperback out in the wild. I think there's a version of it somewhere on the NASA History Archive, but I can't necessarily find that right now, but I know it does exist in paperback. Um, So this is the first volume. This is like, if you think you know the space shuttle and how it was ideated, is that a word? Uh, it's a word if you work in a corporate office, but okay. not if you're a human. I got yeah. it. All right, sure. So if, if you think you know like how <laughs> the idea for the space shuttle came about, why it came about, how it became what it is, um, you don't until you've read this book. It is crazy. Like letters between the office of management and budget and the president, letters between the vice president and the office of management, but like just crazy detail. Um, but this one runs first volume runs from sixty five to seventy two. So this was while Apollo was still going on, figuring out what is NASA going to do next. We need a shuttle. This is our plan. This is our architecture. Um, and culminates in the go-ahead to this is the shuttle. This is what it's going to look like. These are the um, requirements. And let's go into it. So this is like, I don't know. This one is particularly my favorite because it's got all of the shuttle concepts in it, which I just love. Like, there's so many weirdo concepts. They're so good. Yeah. So it, and it's got all the original drawings from like the original mm-hmm. North American proposal and the original Rockwell proposal and then like I rounds love two sleek, and three. Like, it's like there's the one that I love that's like shows the shuttle on the tarmac and it's basically like if you think about the the Bell airplane that that Jaeger broke the sound barrier and it's like that but just bigger. Like, yeah. It's like this like pointed nose and like. <laughs> yeah, there's so much weird stuff. Um, like this is one that is in there. I'm showing Jake on the. Oh, weird. 
Oh, no, don't do that. So there's just like all the great concepts. If if someone proposed that today, we'd be laughing them out of the industry right now. So yeah, it's a pretty thick book, uh, but that's the first volume. Second volume is, so that was called The Space Shuttle Decision. This one is called The Development of the Space Shuttle. This runs 72 to 81. So this is that, this is volume two. I guess there's going to be a volume three. It's not out yet, but that would like tell the story of shuttle. But this is like, you've made the decision, you've locked it in and then go about developing it. Um, And those dates are a little off because it does also get into like shuttle upper stages, Centaur and all that kind of stuff that that was rumored. So um, again, really nice books in encyclopedic. The text in these pages is even smaller and it's a thicker book, so it's just like really, really, you know, deep into it. This one is also available paperback, but there is a Kindle version as well of the second one only, not the first, hmm. which sucks. Um, mm, and okay. just to show you, I did switch over to reading the Kindle, um, but you can find out where I left off in the paperback version before the Kindle version came out, because my bookmark is an old school SLS, uh, like with the Saturn V style painting on it. <laughs> um, and it's got a hashtag journey to Mars on it. Oh yeah. And this is a bookmark I got at EFT one way back in the day. So journey to Mars. So that's it. Space shuttle decision and the development of the space shuttle TA Heppenheimer. They are awesome. That's awesome, man. I, I haven't read this, the centaur book yet. And now I got to read these ones too. Yeah. And like, I don't, I'm not a good reader. So. No, neither am I. That's why I still have an EFT one bookmark in my book. Maybe can you just like can you just read aloud when you go through it and then record that and then yeah. listen to it? That's a good idea that, for business. That'd be really helpful. Really helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, so I have um, a pair of picks that are related as well. Um, so you remember last last month I was like, I'll always pick the pick like the day before because I'll forget it. This time I didn't. I actually saw something. I was like, I'm gonna make this my pick. So. Um, I saw it first on Jason Davis' Twitter, who's from the Planetary Society, and they posted this article. It was a reprint from another publication, but they they reprinted it. And it was a blog post about um, celestial navigation. So the Polynesian people from a long, long time ago, uh, you know, and if you watched Moana, you know what I'm talking about. Great movie. Yeah. It's an awesome movie. Yeah, great movie. And she, she holds her hand up with the thumb on the horizon and does the thing and finds Polaris. And she's like, this way is north or whatever. Or I know what latitude I'm at. So uh, so they went through a little bit of the, the tricks and stuff and some of the, the uh, you know, the it was, it was very high level. It was kind of an interesting little, little post. But uh, Jason tweeted a reply where he dug into one of the sources for it. So just one of the diagrams had like, you know, source something, something journal of Polynesian culture. And he like found that paper and that was the treasure trove. So I opened this paper up and it's like, it's, I don't know, 20, 30 pages or whatever. And it's actually a, like a scientific paper on celestial navigation, like Polynesian, the art. And in, in 1980, there was this guy who, uh, his name was Nainoa Thompson, I think. And he was like, a hobby celestial navigator or whatever and he like what? he like yeah he like learned it there's there's like this group of people that are trying to keep it alive right because you don't you don't need it today um but he learned from this this guy who's this old man who like learned it from his grandpa or whatever and it was like it's, it was hanging on there and he, so he learns it again and he did like a test voyage and they like they ma- they like measured it with um instruments on the boat and so he would like 
every day he would like look and see where he is and, and say, I, I think I'm here. And they would compare it to the actual coordinates with GPS and this boat, like followed them and recorded all the winds and everything to see how accurate he was. And it's fascinating. And he went from Hawaii down to Tahiti and then back, which is like not a short travel. Whoa. Like it's like 4,000 kilometers each way. Like it's so, so far. Uh, it's like 40 degrees of latitude or something that he, that he crosses or I don't know. I can't remember it is, but it's far. Uh, and like, he was pretty close. Like there's, and you could tell he would, he would be able to tell you why he was like inaccurate. So like he would diverge from the path a little bit because he wasn't sure about something. And then you get to a point where he would finally figure out the correction and he would correct back, like right back on track to where he was again. It's, it's nuts. And it's like this whole story of like, you know, cause you, you can tell your latitude reasonably easy, um, using stars, but it's the longitude that's difficult. Right. And they would basically do this thing called like dead reckoning where they just like yep. watch the water and they're like, well, it went by this fast and the winds this way. So I probably went here. And then they would just like mentally remember every, every day where they'd been. And, and oh, like it's crazy what they would do. So if you want to learn about Polynesian celestial navigation and some of the wacko stuff they do, you're talking about like when they finally get close to the destination. Cause even if you're like, you know, if you're accurate, to like i don't know 10 percent on a or even five percent on a four thousand kilometer journey you, you could still miss a, an island by right, like 100 totally. kilometers right yeah so they do this thing where they like watch the clouds and like the peaks would like move the clouds right like of these islands and you, they could see the cloud patterns and sometimes they would see like the shallow water near the the islands would reflect up because the, the the water was like lighter color and they could see the reflection on the clouds they're like oh there's an island that way or there's an island that way and they could see them from hundreds of kilometers away like just wacko stuff like that whoa it's it's so incredible you know and you think about like a a culture that didn't have a written language and they had no metalworks there's like just no instruments at all like they literally just like went out there and like these are my instruments my hands and my star chart that i made up in my brain with rocks like it's just it's nuts so i don't know i was like captivated i read it and read it and read it read it so, um, yeah, so we'll put the links to there. And then I kind of have um, kind of a special bonus treat. So uh, I just finished a class. I was taking a class uh, on, called sound design. And it was just basically like I wanted to learn. I wanted to put some credentials next to what I could, you know, what I thought <laughs> I could do with podcasting. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. So I just I took a sound design class. And the final project was to make a podcast. And it could be about every, whatever you wanted. So I actually chose this topic is because since i was reading about it i made a podcast about this so i actually have a 10 minute uh short show that i don't know if we should link to it or i don't know, maybe drop it in the feed or something we can just we can link it somehow and you can listen to a uh well a reasonably well produced uh um, <laughs> 10 minutes and a i'll tell you all about it i'll tell you all produced about podcast than one that happens in a closet definitely yeah because i got graded on it so <laughs> But yeah, so I, I, I'll go through like all the different things that they do and, and some of that stuff. So, and I had a little fun with it because I, I like to do, well, as you can tell from this episode, I like to tell stories. So, um, kind of told a little bit of a story with it and, and, uh, yeah, it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's scary though. I don't know how those guys do it. No, not at all. They I'm don't, not... they don't get to sleep. Yeah. I guess. Cause shifts, you have to keep right? watching. Well, you have to, you have to keep watching the wind. Like, so they do these like Well, you could do shifts. Naps. Like, yeah. Like you can go to yeah. sleep and I could do it for a little and then switch. Apparently you couldn't though because you had to like it was like a you had to, series. You had to of... keep it all loaded into your head. Yeah. What it's... do you not sleep for four thousand kilometers? You just do power naps. It's like every like couple hours you take a twenty minute. Or, well, you know? how does that count? You can't. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, okay. I'm not going to get too mad about let's, it, but... Let's just say it's a really hard thing. It is. <laughs> you got any plugs before we're out of here? Something you've been uh, cooking up over there? Mm. Like your podcast? Not the one that you just plugged, the main one? Main one, the real one? Yeah. I should I should preface that, that the the bonus podcast sounds like it's a real podcast it's a fake podcast there are no subsequent episodes to this podcast yeah it's for school it's educational purposes only yeah <laughs> um i did a new website i guess that came out oh yeah yeah new website yeah uh it was a lot of work way way more work than i wanted to do but i think i don't have to migrate after this one i've now changed websites every year and i think this is the last time i have to do it for a while <laughs> yeah for a couple of years yeah for two years at least yeah um but yeah so it it's not really any different right now but it's uh it's good in that it sets me up to do more things later foreshadowing can you tell us what the website is www.wemartians.com what about dot space i thought there was a dot space that one works too okay cool they both go to the same place if you were an astute listener, you would have known that Dot Space was my dev site. So if you oh, you could sorry. have seen the development as I went. <laughs> sorry, putting you on blast. Cool. I've yeah. been uh, doing podcasting too over at managingcutoff.com. I was recently in Houston, got to visit NanoRacks and talked a little bit about it on there, which I thought was pretty fun. That looked like an awesome trip. It was a lot of fun. I I really 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 enjoyed Houston. I'd never been there. So I, I very much enjoyed it. My next trip is going to be even more awesome. Um, going to be out in Utah for a little bit. One of those days and nights is going to be at Bryce Canyon National Park, which mm. is a fine desert location, 9,000 feet in the air. Not in the air, but, you know, relatively in the air. In zero light pollution. So it's going to be, like, the most perfect skies I've ever seen. So I probably will be practicing some celestial navigation <laughs> here's here's the trick if you don't listen to anything else the the dis the dis- distance in degrees of polaris above the horizon is also your latitude north of the equator there it is how about that see little Bryce Cannon. I'm, I'm guessing that's like 35 40 degrees or is yeah. that something like that right i'm, I'm on the border so i'm 49 yeah gotta be i don't know okay i'd say it's yeah probably 30 35 to 40 somewhere in there something like that it is cool okay all right let's test it out should be should be about halfway up almost i'll work on it yeah (laughs) tell me what the milky way looks like i don't know what it looks like oh man i live in cities yeah that's all i got that's all we got um you can follow anthony on twitter at we have miko and his website is managingcutoff.com he's got a great podcast we just did this <laughs> not the twitter stuff not the twitter stuff you're right and you're at we underscore martians yes you can tweet at we martians if you want it's some other guy who just gets all my tweets he doesn't post anything i check it every couple months <laughs> yeah you can file a thing for that can you yeah i'll show you how okay all right goodbye thank you one two three four five five four three two one end of death